Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 25. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss an article about the dangers of anesthesia-free dentistry. I'm going to talk to you about worms in your dog and how you can treat them at home. Lastly, we're going to tell you about new natural treatments for itching and scratching. Yes, allergy solutions. Now Veterinary Secrets is on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. You can download the Stitcher app and search for Veterinary Secrets. I would definitely appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on my blog. That's at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog. I post every podcast there. Or as well, you can send me an email and that's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. Let's get right into today's podcast. Well, Southern California is a hotspot for anesthesia-free dental controversy. So claims DVM360. They say that a recently publicized client horror story keeps care, revenue, and oversight regarding the procedure in the spotlight. So here's the story. Recently, a local news station in Southern California, NBC4, reported that a cat named Monkey Face died after a visit to the Smile Specialist, an anesthesia-free pet dental service. A week after Monkey Face's $100 dental cleaning, which was supervised by a veterinarian, the cat wouldn't eat or drink, according to the report. Monkey Face's owner took the cat to her regular veterinarian, who found that the patient's tongue was almost completely severed and infected. The cat was euthanized. The story has revived the controversy over anesthesia-free dental cleanings for pets. This is a discussion that has been going on in the state of California for at least 20 to 25 years, says Peter Weinstein, DVM MBA, executive director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. Weinstein says that anesthesia-free dental care lives in a hazy gray area of the practice. His take, veterinarians should keep hold of the service rather than shunning to the point that it's beyond veterinary oversight. Like it or not, there's a market for it. Weinstein says that what started as an influx of uncertified grooming, pet stores, and boarding facilities that aggressively marketed anesthesia-free dental cleanings has grown into four highly competitive business models in Southern California. There's anesthesia-free dental cleanings done by uncertified groomers, boarding facilities, and pet stores. There's non-veterinary businesses providing this anesthesia-free dental cleanings with direct supervision by veterinarians. There are anesthesia-free dental cleanings done by certified technicians at veterinary hospitals with direct veterinary supervision. And there's veterinarians and veterinary technicians with mobile premise permits setting up outside boarding and grooming facilities to do anesthesia-free dental cleanings. Weinstein believes the procedure should always always be done with veterinary oversight as stipulated by the Practice Act, but it's difficult for the California Veterinary Medical Board to crack down on unlicensed activity, he says. At most, it can impose a fine, and then only if a consumer makes a complaint of significant damage. Educate the uneducated, he claims. Weinstein believes the pet owners who pursue anesthesia-free dental care at non-veterinary facilities fail to understand the risks. They're making the pet look pretty for all intents and purposes, but there's still disease going on, he says. From a clinician's standpoint, it's totally inappropriate. Furthermore, Weinstein says that these consumers have two fears, money and anesthesia. Both fears can be ameliorated with education, he claims. 
but the internet isn't helping, Weinstein says. Uncertain pet owners will find their fears confirmed in anesthesia-free marketing. For example, a recent post on the Smile Specialist Facebook page reads, The Journal for the American Animal Hospital Association did a study to evaluate the health risks of routine anesthetic dental cleaning. Over 300 of the dogs in this study had major complications from anesthesia, including low blood pressure, abnormal heart rhythm, and even death due to the complications of sedation. The post fails to mention that AHA guidelines state that general anesthesia with intubation is necessary to properly assess and treat companion animal dental patients, and without it, patients are subject to increased stress and risk. Keep your enemies close. However, Weinstein believes that there's room for veterinary hospitals to offer high-quality veterinary-supervised anesthesia-free dental cleanings as a dental maintenance service. There are probably patients with minimal tartar no disease who've had a full-blown cleaning who weren't an anesthesia-free dental at a hospital. I think it's a maintenance-type situation or starting some young dogs with hand scaling to get used to it. It's not appropriate for every dog or cat, it's or appropriate for every technician, doctor, hospital, or client. He says it's all about case selection and judicious approach to the issue. I've watched the procedure being done, he says. We had one of the anesthesia-free technicians come in with a dog and sit on the floor and clean the dog's teeth. It was very impressive. He adds that the patient was a black lab. He'd like to see her try it with a chihuahua. Weinstein has also watched that technician clean a cat's teeth while it was wrapped in a towel. It can be done in what appears to be a low-stress fashion. But he says the appropriate judicious approach is unlikely to happen without veterinary oversight. The veterinarian gets to see the animal six months later and see all these loose white teeth, Weinstein says. The pet owner only knows that the groomer takes care of it. He says that they've never been told about the pathology. So fair enough. So there's a couple of big points here. First of all, that's a hugely unfortunate situation as far as what happened to that animal that that was brought in, unfortunately, even to a veterinary practice. Cat named Monkey Face that somehow nearly had his tongue cut off. Um, Obviously, that person and that practice should not be even doing dentists, never mind anesthesia-free dental cleaning. Two, the other big point that the veterinary profession is not being open and transparent with the number of animals that are adver- adversely affected by anesthesia. Clearly, it is a substantial risk. Um, and I think any of you listening to this podcast and um, what you're aware about with your own animals, with yourselves, and um, with your family, yes, a whole lot happens when you're under anesthesia. It's a big, big thing. So there's clear, clear risk of having anesthesia. Two, I don't think that they're very impression. They're not recognizing that the costs are keeping many clients away from actually having their pet, their pet's teeth cleaned properly. And by not having their teeth cleaned, that's also harming pets. Obviously, you're going to be able to do a much thorough dental. You're going to have a veterinarian who can then, if your animal is under anesthesia, just chart those teeth, fully clean under the gum line, and so hopefully halting periodontal disease. But at the same point, is it better then to not treat those animals at all, where they're not getting any form of a veterinary dental care? They've got more tartar building up. It's more, more tartar affecting their gums because they can't afford a $500 dental scale and cleaning. Far better to get those animals in and they actually get their teeth reasonably well cleaned. Anesthesia-free dental. Three, you know, the, my last point, I really think the veterinary profession is being too controlling, claiming that only under this quote-unquote supervision of a veterinarian can that dog, can your dog or cat have its teeth cleaned. Really? My two cents. So let's get on to the second part of today's podcast about dog worms, how to quickly treat them with natural and conventional options. Worms in dogs are very common, with up to one-third of all dogs being infected with intestinal parasites. Roundworms, tapeworms, coccidian giardia. In this section, I'm going to go over the most common types of worms and how you can tell if your dog has them. 
I'll then go on to show you how to prevent dogworms and give you some of the best ways to treat them, both the conventional medication and natural options. First, roundworms, they're most common. These worms are one to three inches long, white, and tapered around, hence the name roundworm. The veterinary name for roundworms is Toxocaracanus. These are what most puppies have when they've been diagnosed with worms. Dogs with roundworms often have a distended belly, appearing bloated. In large infestations, they can cause vomiting, diarrhea, and weight loss, although most pet owners diagnose them by seeing a worm in their dog's stool. They're easily transmitted from dog to dog via worm eggs in the stool and on the ground. Tapeworms are the next most common intestinal parasite of dogs. They're known as Dipalidium canis. Most dogs with tapeworms have few clinical signs, although heavy infestation can cause intestinal upset and weight loss. These are easily diagnosed by finding segments of the tapeworm in your dog's stool. The segments are flat, white, and sometimes described as flat grains of rice. Dogs acquire most tapeworms after ingesting a flea. The tapeworm life cycle includes maturing in a flea to be able to be transmitted to other dogs. Tapeworms can also be transmitted with other animals, such as your dog ingesting a mouse. Coccidia, it's a worm-like microscopic intestinal parasite that commonly causes diarrhea in puppies, but can affect older dogs with compromised immune system. Coccidia is spread from dog to dog via eggs in the stool, contaminating the water and the environment. Some dogs have a small number of coccidia in their intestinal tract, but the organism flourishes if your pup is under stress, such as in overcrowded, unsanitary conditions, leading to diarrhea. Coccidia can be diagnosed with a veterinary microscopic fecal flotation and should be suspected in any puppy with diarrhea that doesn't respond to traditional roundworm treatment. Giardia is a waterborne intestinal parasite that more commonly affects adult dogs causing diarrhea. It's also known as beaver fever. Giardia gets into the water via contamination by wild animals, such as beavers and infected dogs. The Giardia cysts multiply in the intestinal tract, leading to the signs of diarrhea with blood or mucus in the stool. It's a very difficult parasite to diagnose in veterinary practice, so many, many clinicians just may treat your dog for it with a conventional anti-Giardia medication, such as metronidazole or Panicure. Good hygiene and common sense is the best way to prevent your dog from getting worms in the first place. Pick up feces outside in your lawn, and prevent your dog from eating other dogs' feces. Restrict your dog from drinking and watering contaminated creeks or water that is stagnant in small pools. Practice adequate flea control to limit the likelihood of tapeworms, and ensure that your dog has a hygienic, uncrowded environment to decrease the chances of developing coccidia. The conventional treatment for dogworms depends upon the type of intestinal, intestinal parasite that your dog has. Roundworms are easily treated with a common and safe medication called Pyrantel. Avoid using any of the older dewormers com containing papyrazine as they can be very unsafe. Treatment with Pyran is two doses 10 to 14 days apart. As most puppies of roundworms, I suggest having them all dosed with Pyran at 6 and 8 weeks. They may need additional treatments. Tapeworms respond well to treatment with Praziquantel, which can combine combined with pyran, called drontol. Generally, only one dose is required. Coccidia respond best to the sulfa antibiotics, usually sulfa diamethoxine at or S125 or Albon, the dose being 250 milligrams per 10 pounds once daily for 14 to 21 days. Giardia can be treated with two common conventional medications, metronidazole and an older dewormer that I just mentioned, venbendazole. Venbendazole is also effective against other intestinal parasites and is becoming the treatment of choice for giardia. 
The fenbendazole dose is 250mg per 10 pounds once daily for 3 to 7 days. A number of different natural remedies are being used to help treat and eliminate worms in dogs. Papaya was shown to be effective in eliminating roundworms in pigs. It may work for your pet, and at very least it will do no harm. Pumpkin seed has been used for tapeworms. If your pet is a great hunter, always reinfesting him or herself with tapeworms, you may want to consider this. The dose is 1 teaspoon per 10 pounds of body weight of the ground seed. Black walnut, also known as Juglans nigra, is a common antiparasitic used for animals. You're giving one capsule of the ground herb for 20 pounds of body weight. Garlic has been shown to have some activity against a parasite called Giardia, which causes beaver fever. It can be useful in recurrent infections. You should now have a good understanding of some of the common types of worms in dogs and be able to recognize the common symptoms of infection, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss, and worms in the feces. The four most common intestinal parasites are roundworms, tapeworms, coccidia, and giardia. They can all be prevented with adequate dog hygiene. And lastly, you should now be aware of the most effective conventional and holistic remedies to treat your dog if they are to acquire any of these intestinal parasites. And now the last section of the podcast, dog allergies, new treatments. Yes, you know, what's causing your dog to do all that scratching, itching, and excessive paw killing? Chances are we're dealing with an allergy chances are it's an environmental type allergy also known as atopy some of the more common signs you know your your dog is excessively licking his paws they may have excessive recurring ear infections they may have red skin they've got hair loss from the scratching or just from the allergy symptoms Um, they may be licking at their anus most of you listening to the podcast i think you're pretty familiar with allergies in people and probably in dogs so many clients have dog allergies that anytime you see this ongoing itching and scratching and licking head shaking you know there's an allergy going on and you've probably spent some time thinking about what else can i do unfortunately in veterinary practice we don't have very many options Um, In the past, we were just dealing with the steroid medications such as prednisone. Um, Yeah, it was pretty effective as helping to stop the itching, but it gave a whole bunch of secondary problems. Um, There's now some newer medication out now, um, some of the immunosuppressive drugs. Likewise, too, though, we're still not getting to the root of a cause, and even these new medications have their side effects along with their expense and costs. So what else can you do? Early on when I started the podcast, so in podcast number one, if you want to go to that, episode one, I talked about some of the more common allergy treatments, or these are some of the new ones you may not be aware of. One, feet washing. Regularly washing of your dog's paws after they come in from being outside is one of the best ways to decrease the itching. This washes off the outdoor allergens. You can use a damp cloth or put your pup in the bath. And many clients I had started to do this really found a difference, like every time they come in. So now we're understanding that more of these allergies are surface-based, so that allergen, be it the grass pollen, is getting onto your dog And that's what's then ultimately triggering the itching and the scratching. So just regularly washing your pet's feet. Two, antihistamines. Benadryl is the most common use antihistamine. It is given at a dose of one milligram per pound of body weight, two to three times a day. Bioflavonoids. These are compounds found in the pigment of fruits and vegetables. One found in apples called quercetin has been shown to be effective in reducing itchiness in people. The dose is 25 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight twice daily. Licorice root. It's a great anti-inflammatory. It can be used with care but not long term. The dose is 50 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight of the dried herb or one drop per pound of body weight twice daily of the tincture. It must not be used if your pet has liver, kidney, or heart disease. Topical treatment. 
There are new topical therapies that can help the skin barrier. That's called the epidermal barrier. The big difference with these and the essential fatty acids is that they're applied directly to your pet's skin and they provide an ingredient called ceramides. That's a key part of the skin barrier because what we're understanding now is much more of this surface allergy called atopy is based on you know these allergens being on the surface of your dog's skin. The skin layer is broken down. Um, they find their way in. They penetrate in through that skin, triggering that whole allergic cycle and response of inflammation and itching that just sort of perpetuates itself. So here's three that you should know about. One is called Allerderm Spot-On. It contains ceramides and fatty acid-containing liquid. It is, it is applied topically similar to how monthly flea medications are applied. The directions are apply one pipette a week for four weeks and then one pipette a month for maintenance. There's Dermal Essential Spot-On. This is one small scientific study backing its effectiveness. The directions are to apply one pipette a week for eight weeks and then one pipette every two weeks for maintenance. The last one is a shampoo called Duoxo Severia Shampoo and it's also got a Severia Micro Emulsion Spray and a Severia Spot-On. The Spot-On directions are to apply once a week for four weeks and then twice monthly for maintenance. So there you have some new allergy potential remedies that you may not be aware of. So thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Andrew Jones. Um, a couple things. One, if you if you have yet to subscribe, I, I encourage you to do so. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Any questions or comments, feel free to post a comment on my blog at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash blog, or you can send me an email. That's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. Thanks again, and I'll be talking to you again next week. This is Dr. Andrew Jones.